you know, Bernard Nathanson, he was responsible really for building up the whole abortion industry. And then he did become pro-life and eventually became Catholic. And he famously said that if the church had been united, purposeful, and strong uh, during that time period, then they would have never have been able to uh, legalize abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, then it goes back to the states. That's so correct. in other words, abortion doesn't exactly go away in America. So New York is already mm-hmm. prepared for that possibility by locking it in so that they can still provide legal abortion. And then there are one or two other states out there. So how does it work? That's exactly right. In fact, if you look back, uh, New York. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Anthony Stefano is a successful American author, television host, and a pro-life advocate He has written five best-selling Christian books for adults, including A Travel Guide to Heaven and Ten Prayers God Always Says Yes To. He has also written eight best-selling books for children, including The Donkey That No One Could Ride and Little Star. And he has a new book out, The Beggar and the Bluebird. Anthony DiStefano is my guest coming up this episode. You know, it's uh, it, it is a Christmas book. Actually, I have two Christmas books out. One of them is more more religious, called Joseph's Donkey, and it's about Saint Joseph. But uh, this one is a kind of a, a modern day Christian fairy tale. I would describe it as it's about a uh, a little bird whose flight southward for the winter mm-hmm. it keeps getting delayed because of the re- the strange requests of a local street beggar. This beggar asks him to go on various errands of mercy. He asks him to drop bread off to a homeless man and uh, uh, money off to a widow with orphans and, and a little gold cross off to a, a boy in the hospital. And as a, as a result of performing these errands of mercy, the bird gets uh, stuck in a, a snowstorm, a blizzard, and all seems lost uh, until a surprise ending, which I think we could, I think we can give away here. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. I hope you're all well and getting into the spirit of Christmas. And as I like to say, and I believe some of you get a wee kick out of this, it's grand to have you back. I hope you are following us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Dig Life Deep and watching our YouTube channel at Dig Life Deep. That's our new name, formerly called Life on Planet Earth here on this podcast. It's now Dig Life Deep. Our new website is also coming soon. Now, if you are looking for gift ideas for your children for the Christmas and holiday season, you might want to consider the new book by Anthony Stefano, The Beggar and the Bluebird. 
before Anthony tells us about his new book, I caught up on him to tell us more about who, in fact, is Anthony Di Stefano, because his backstory is as equally fascinating as his successful literary career. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Anthony Di Stefano grew up in Brooklyn in an Italian-American household, and I first asked him to tell us about his Catholic faith growing up, since he is today a Christian writer, a practicing Catholic, and a pro-life activist. Yes, I am. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, as uh, any of your listeners or viewers could tell from my accent immediately. But uh, yes, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and actually, uh, to to cut a long story short, I did not grow up in a very uh, religious home. We, you know, went to church on, uh, you know, holidays and things, but we weren't uh, very religious. And uh, I wanted to, I have a science background. I wanted to be a doctor. I went to a school called Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, and then later on, I majored in chemistry and biology. Uh, I wanted very much to be a doctor. Uh, but uh, a couple of little things got in the way, uh, like organic chemistry and integral calculus. <laughs> and uh, I wandered uh, for several years in the, you know, in the wilderness, not knowing what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be a writer, always. Uh, a lot of books in my home and always reading. And then uh, one time I was, uh, I was on a train in, from, uh, going from London to Manchester, and I happened to read a book by C.S. Lewis called uh, The Screwtape Letters. And uh, it, it really captivated me, this book. I, I, I hear with someone who was uh, you know, defending the Christian faith in a very clever, uh, brilliant, witty way. And I had never read that kind of writing before. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I like to write. I've always thought about writing. I'm, I'm, uh, I had already come back to the faith a little bit by that point. And I thought, you know, this is, this is, this is something maybe I should really try seriously to do. Uh, so I got involved in writing. Uh, along that, a parallel path, um, when I had gotten back committed to my faith again, it was really because of a parish priest that I had uh, by this time, I was living in Staten Island, New York, and my parish priest was someone named Father Frank Pavone. Father Frank Pavone of Priest for Life. This was before Priest for Life. He was just straight out of the seminary, 1988, 1989, and he happened to be my parish priest. He happened to have a Latin mass one night, and I, my sister dragged me off to hear it to, 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 because she knew that I was struggling with my faith in my early 20s. And, uh, and here it is, he comes out and he celebrates this mass in Latin with a brilliant homily. And he looks so young. He, he looked younger than me, even though I'm a little bit younger than him. And I just, I, I, I made an appointment to go see him right away to ask him all the questions I had about the faith. So, so at the same time that I wanted to start writing, I also wanted to get involved in the church in some way. And he was just starting off a couple of years later uh, to be involved with Priest for Life. And so I went on board with him from the very beginning. And so for the last 30 years, I've been on along these parallel tracks of writing books uh, and at the same time also working in the pro-life movement full time. So it's been very, uh, very interesting. My father uh, he grew up, uh, uh, you know, in an immigrant family and, and his uh, mother died when he was very young. He had been an altar boy and he left the church basically because of, you know, his mother died when he was 16. And. There were 11 children, you know, picture one of those immigrant type families. And he didn't, uh, he sort of felt, f 
fell away for many, many years. Uh, eventually he came back uh, and, and was a daily communicant actually before he died. But, but for those years when he was married to my mom and he had the five of us children, no, we weren't religious at all. And that's why it's rather interesting that uh, I did go the route I did. And, and in fact, my youngest brother, Salvatore, is a priest in the Archdiocese of New York. So, uh, so, so we're all somehow connected to uh, uh, helping the church in some way. So it's interesting, interesting the way God works. We bounced around a lot. I lived most of the time in, in an, a big area called Flatbush mm-hmm. and went to public schools. Uh, like I said, we didn't, I mean, you know, if I, I guess I made my communion at a, a Holy Ghost at the time, it was called Holy Spirit, St. Rose, a couple of those churches. But again, we weren't very, we weren't really, we didn't practice. Anthony Stefano told me some more about his father and the hardships and poverty of his dad's childhood. At some point in time, a certain cynicism, it seems to me, set in about faith and the church in the midst of deprivation and loss and great tragedy that honestly would challenge the best of us. So these stories are worth listening to. They reveal much. So he was first generation. In other words, his, his mother was an immigrant. She came over on the boat from Italy when, in 1920 when she was 17 years old by herself yeah. you know, to escape the poverty there. Uh, but, but his father left their family, you know, left 11 children. So it was, they, had a, they had a rough, rocky time in Brooklyn. No, the whole, I grew up in a neighborhood that was a real uh, hodgepodge. We had in my neighborhood, Jews and Puerto Ricans and Italians and Irish, and we were a real melting pot, our neighborhood. And all of us were going to public schools. Some of the families went to church more than others. Our best friends were the Callahans and they, they went to church a lot more than we did. But we were, I would, all of us were kind of secular uh, but but unlike some of the secularism today, we weren't ever against the church. We never were against uh, God or Christianity or Catholicism or the moral uh, fiber, fabric of that. We, we were just sort of, uh, like you said, outliers, you know. Interesting, too, uh, one of the things I forgot to mention was when I went to high school, uh, one of the things that started me off earlier writing was I had a teacher named Frank McCourt. I know Malachi quite well. I I won't say quite well, but I know Malachi. Yes, and he's he's his he's alive and kicking, and he's you know he's, he's as spunky yeah. as ever. But Frank McCourt was my English teacher at Stuyvesant for three years. He was the only English teacher I ever had there. And as you know, you know he wasn't the greatest the Catholic, and he you know he was always taking pot shots against the church and all. But he was he was a great he was a good good man and a great teacher. And he uh, assigned all of us in his creative writing classes to write children's books and then to send these books out to publishers. And the reason why he did that very smart, tactical uh, writing uh, instructional move was because he knew that high schoolers uh, and and adults as well have a lot of problem writing simply, you know, they all use all these adjectives and adverbs and they write over elaborately and ornately. And he wanted to break, all of these would-be writers of that bad habit. So he insisted that we write children's books in order to write simply. And the book I wrote at the time was called Little Star. And uh, there was some interest in it, even at the time when I was in my early teens, it wasn't published then. It sat in the drawer for 30 years. But then eventually it became, it became my, uh, my first uh, book that was published. But it was actually written 
uh, you know, now, now must be 40, uh, 35, 40 years ago in, in, in Frank McCourt's English class. He, um, I spoke to him a lot about it at the time uh, because he would talk about it in, in class and he was, uh, he never attacked the church. Like he was too much of a, 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 a he was, he was too much of it. It was too much in his blood anyway, the Catholicism, but yeah. he was critical of the church in Ireland at the time. I remember he compared it unfavorably. He thought that, that it, it wasn't a ha it just wasn't happy enough that they didn't emphasize the joy of uh, Christianity uh, in the churches that he grew up with in Limerick. And yeah. he compared when he compared it negatively to some of the uh, European, other European churches, like we you always know, see pictures of saints who are smiling. Let's say uh, he, he he didn't like the atmosphere of it. He thought he 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 objected against that. I don't know what what he felt like at the at the end of his life though. Uh, but I know one thing: he was a great teacher, and he was always funny. He was always extremely extraordinarily kind to me, and I remember him with nothing but the fondness and admiration for what he did for me. Anthony De Stefano is today not only a popular author, but an activist. He explains here how it happened. Well, uh, this Father Frank Pavone, who you who we've mentioned before, heads a group called Priests for Life. And it's really the largest Catholic pro-life group in the United States. Uh, one of the largest pro-life groups, period. And uh, its mission is to uh, help uh, inspire and encourage and train the clergy on how to be more pro-life. We're obviously living in these, you know, these controversial times and abortion is a hot button issue. And, uh, you know, the priests uh, find it difficult to talk about. Uh, and sometimes they don't talk about it. Sometimes it's because they are afraid to talk about it because they know that so many people in their pews have experienced abortion. Other times there's an element of uh, cowardice. Other times there's an element of ignorance. They, ignorance. they just don't know how. So Priests for Life was founded with the idea of helping the clergy. But, you know, what, what it, it evolved into an organization that, that is sort of like a clearinghouse of, of, of resources and, and, and educational materials and information for not just the Catholic Church, but all people, even people of no faith, uh, to help them deal with this, with this issue of abortion. And uh, it also is connected to Rachel's Vineyard, which is the largest post-abortion healing ministry in the world. And Father Frank is the head of all of this. And uh, I've been blessed to work by his side for the last 30 years. And so, uh, it's, so it's very nice for, for me because on the one hand, I'm able to write books and talk about these life and death issues going heaven, hell, uh, and write for children. At the same time, though, because I get to work uh, is an activist, behind the scenes activist in the pro-life movement, because what I do is I oversee, you know, the legal kinds of things with the organization. I'm not a front kind of a person. Uh, I do feel like I'm on the, you know, the, the tipping point of the arrow there, the, the, the tip of the arrow. And we are in the middle of a cultural war. It, that is true. There are two sides. There is a, the forces of secularism versus, you know, uh, those who espouse, you know, more traditional Christian morality. And, and I do feel that it's important to be involved in that. So I, I, I like that I have my feet in both puddles there. Uh, if, if I died, in other words, what I'm trying to say, and I'm not bragging at all, what I'm trying to say is that if I died tomorrow, I would not feel like I would have wasted my life. I feel that I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, whether I'm doing it well or not, well, that's a whole different question. But I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Here's Anthony's take on where we are at today in the culture wars 
more specifically on what is weighing on minds in the U.S. Supreme Court as the pro-abortion Roe v. Wade decision hangs in the balance and as several states become more pro-life. It's a very interesting question. There are some extremely ho- uh, hopeful signs, as you as you pointed out. Uh, the country is not pro-abortion. You ask most people and they favor restrictions on abortions. They do not favor abortion uh, through all nine months of pregnancy. They, uh, they, 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 most Americans uh, feel that abortion somehow is wrong and should be restricted. Most Americans in all, in all the major polls. And yes, uh, the Supreme Court now, yes, it's possible that, that we might get a reversal of Roe versus Wade. Uh, and certainly in the States, that's where the, that's where the real action is happening. Yeah. So, so, so yes, there's been progress. There's no doubt that there's been progress. However, the scariest thing uh, is simply that the whole culture um, is really, uh, you know, we don't, I don't know how much you want to get into the culture war, but you know, the the uh, the media, uh, uh, the the uh, Hollywood, the entertainment industry, uh, the academic world, the, you know, you know, the universities. Uh, a, a, a large part of, of uh, the, the one whole party, political party, and, and a chunk of another party are all squarely on the pro-abortion side. And that's a lot of firepower. That's a yeah. lot of uh, power to propagandize children. That's a lot of power. And so there's so while there's hopeful signs, there's no question that we're still fighting, you know, a giant here. And uh, so it's a, there's a big fight ahead, no matter which way you look at it. So you're an active and a practicing and a devout Catholic. I think that's fair to say you're involved with and a weak and a weak Catholic. But but yes, I try to be devout. <laughs> okay, uh, it's an interesting qualifier. That's that shows humility, Anthony. Um, where is the Catholic Church on this? I mean, I've heard somebody ask: Is has the Catholic Church gone soft on abortion? And by that they meant why are individual bishops squabbling over strategies? on abortion laws in their approach to the White House on controversial areas like the reception of Holy Communion? Those are, that's a very complicated question and the whole, and, and uh, it's, it's uh, I don't want to start bashing bishops here. I am a devout Catholic uh, and I, and uh, some of the bishops have their reasons, they, they, their prudential judgment. Uh, you know, they say they don't want to weaponize the, the Holy Communion. But, but of course, as a pro-lifer, uh, you know, I don't see it that way. I don't see how anyone could give uh, communion to uh, somebody like Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi. But, but the larger question about the church, the church's position has not, uh, cannot, and will not ever change on abortion. Uh, it, it has already spoken infallibly, the magisterium has spoken infallibly on the evil, the intrinsic evil of abortion. Uh, Pope John Paul II's, of course, great cyclical and Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life, uh, along with the whole history of the church. Uh, so it can never go back. But whether or not they're soft on abortion, yes. Well, this is why a group like Priest for Life exists, for the very reason that uh, it does seem that uh, there aren't as many people speaking out as strongly as they should be in the leadership of the church on this issue. Uh, there have been some extraordinarily wonderful comments made by Bishop Strickland, Bishop Archbishop Cordelione recently, uh, the Pope himself, 
has come close to calling abortion child sacrifice. Uh, so there have been these statements that are great, but uh, you know, before the election, let's say, or before any election, uh, there's a tremendous fear uh, in the in the church to speak out on these issues. They're afraid of getting too political. They're afraid perhaps of losing their tax status, which they don't have any reason to fear. Uh, and they're just afraid of this. I think uh, this will be my harshest statement. And, 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 and I don't want to say anything really more about it. But there, there is a kind of a culture of ca- culture of cowardice um, in in the leadership of the church when it comes to the issue of uh, abortion. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of bishops saying wonderful, great things that are right on the money. I'm saying in general, as a as a whole, you know, Bernard Nathanson, he was responsible really for building up the whole abortion industry, and then he did con- become pro life and eventually became Catholic. And he famously said that if the church had been united, purposeful, and strong uh, during that time period, then they would have never have been able to uh, legalize abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. So he put the blame squarely on the church uh, for not being as strong and as courageous as it should be. And I think that's about all I should say. He's a Catholic convert. He, he passed away, obviously, and uh, he left his legacy is is well known and acclaimed by the pro-life movement. Uh, we won't talk at great length about the abortion issue. I'm happy to talk about abortion all, all day, if you like. Uh, we should talk about it, but I, I, I wanted to bring up one important thing that sort of people understand this, and so I do. If the Supreme Court um, overturns Roe v. Wade, then it goes back to the states. That's so correct. in other words... Abortion doesn't exactly go away in America. So New York is already prepared for that possibility by locking it in so that they can still provide legal abortion. And then there are one or two other states out there. So how does it work? That's exactly right. In fact, if you look back, uh, New York, uh, speaking of my place where I come from, New York had legalized abortion before 1973, before Roe versus Wade. Uh so, so again, exactly what you just said, if Roe versus Wade was overturned, there would not be a law uh, in the land against abortion. It would just go back to the states and each state would individually uh, decide the matter. Uh, so, so, so either way, uh, groups like Priests for Life and, and, the, and, and uh, the, the bishops who are speaking out against abortion as they should be, the, the fight is not going to go away. It's just going to get into hand-to-hand combat there on the ground on each state. But with that sort of a situation maybe on the horizon, does that put up a new challenge for the pro-life movement? Is that something else uh, no, that I, we have I, to deal with? Is it Can it be overcome? Because New York City has an exceedingly high rate of abortion, the highest in, in the nation, as I understand it. I don't think that there's anything new for the pro-life movement. The pro-life movement has never just focused on overturning Roe versus Wade. The pro-life movement is an activist movement. It's a movement that's in the streets. It's a multifaceted movement. On the one hand, it, it focuses on helping women in need with groups like Rachel's Vineyard and Silent yeah. More. On the other hand, you know, it, 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 uh, they use graphic images in the street, you know, of aborted babies like the Center for Bioethical Reform that goes right onto the college campuses. So they've been fighting in the streets and uh, for, for many, many years. Uh, only one aspect of the overall strategy to end abortion has to do with the Supreme Court. 
and even with the uh, with any any governmental regulations. So I don't think it I don't think it, it will pose too much of a a new challenge because the the movement's been thinking in those terms anyway. It just will focus it more. The whole idea, as Father Frank always says, is that we want to make abortion unthinkable. Yeah, we don't want to make it illegal. We want to make it unthinkable. We want to make people say that how, how in the world could we can we kill children? How in the world can we do that? And and as he always says, America will never reject abortion until America sees abortion. Mm. America is not going to ever really reject it until it's taken out of the realm of these abstract conversations, which is exactly where, you know, the pro aborts want to keep the discussion and bring it back down to the, made, the, the, the fundamental question, what is it that they are killing? They are killing oh. a little baby, so. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Anthony Stefano, an American author, television host, and a pro-life activist. His new book, the Beggar and the Blueboard is out for Christmas and it's published by Sophia Institute Press. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Yeah, you wonder, would New York any day pass a law that would make abortion illegal? But I mean, we've had a lot of extremely liberal, socially liberal lawmakers. I, I can't, I couldn't see that very, happening. Very hard. Uh, but there have been greater miracles in the past. I, you know, I lived in New York for many years. I live in New Jersey now. And there are, and my whole uh, pro-life formation took place in New York. Father Frank Pavone was at a church called St. Charles in Staten Island. And there are some incredibly strong pro-life priests. Uh, and Cardinal Dolan is, is, has been uh, very vocally pro-life on many occasions. And there are many strong pro-life groups everywhere, especially upstate. So, uh, you know, we have to have faith. That's all that, that uh, we can do anything. Well, you know, we have a lot of great groups like your own, Sisters of Life, uh, people like Chris Slattery there in the Bronx. That's right. Um, I know them. Know Good them Council Network. Um, and there's well, yes. so many groups out there doing so much wonderful work and behind the scenes a lot of the time and offering uh, resources for, for, for women in crisis pregnancies. Yeah, that's right. Because people, uh, people in the, on the other side always like to just paint us as being concerned with fetuses. You know, that's how they're trying to paint the pro-life movement, but it's the exact opposite. The pro-life movement is the, is the movement that's concerned about the women. They're concerned about not only the women, but the, the fathers of these aborted babies, you know, abortion has these reverberating effects, like these shock waves. Janet Marana, who is the executive director of Priest for Life and the co-founder of the Silent No More Awareness Project, talks about this all the time. She has a marvelous book called Shockwaves. And it talks about all the, the, the problems that result from abortion, mental, uh, spiritual, emotional. Uh, it doesn't just end with the abortion. And, and, and who is there to pick up the pieces uh, when these women have abortions and later on are having all kinds of marital problems and don't know why and going through these deep depressions and don't know why. And the reason really is that they inside themselves, they know that they 
that they were responsible for killing their child and they feel guilty about it. And what they don't, what they're not aware of maybe is that forgiveness is, is open to them. God is a God of mercy. God's name is mercy. Father Frank knows a, a woman who had 17 abortions and, and she was forgiven. She, you, forgiveness is always open. The doors of the church are always open. And then once forgiveness takes place, then you can embark on the journey of healing that's necessary. And the pro-life movement is the movement that's doing all that, not Planned Parenthood. Uh, they, all they want is the money that they get from the abortions. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, as you know. And taxpayer-funded money. Yes, exactly. You know, I looked at your website where you have your new book advertised, and it kind of has a Christmas feel. And yeah. I looked at all the endorsements you got. I was blown away. Uh, Fred Barnes, Bernice King, she's daughter of the late Martin Luther King, Tony Robbins, Timothy Cardinal Dolan, Mike Huckabee, Kathy Lee Gifford, Dr. Ben Carson, and on and on and on. You know a lot of people, a lot of people like your work, Anthony. Well, I've been very lucky with that. I really have. I have got some good PR people too. And, uh, I, and, and you know, a lot of these books um, have, been, have made it into the mainstream. You know, another, my, my, I've, uh, you know, Random, uh, Penguin Random House was my publisher for many years. I also uh, Hachette, also HarperCollins. So I've, I, I've been able to uh, manage to avoid staying just in the little niche Catholic world of publishing. Although right now I have a marvelous Catholic publisher named Sophia Institute Press, and they published this latest book. Uh, but yes, I've been blessed that I've been able to get out there and, and my books have uh, been in the mainstream quite a bit. Well, Frank McCourt did a good job on you. <laughs> oh, I give him a lot of credit too. <laughs> Although I, I think it came from your own inspiration and your own creativity as well. But um, yeah, your new book is The Beggar and the Bluebird, right? Um, that's out for Christmas. Can yeah. you summarize this book a little bit? You know, it's, uh, it, it is a Christmas book. Actually, I have two Christmas books out. One of them is more, more religious called Joseph's Donkey, and it's about St. Joseph. But uh, this one is a kind of a, a modern-day Christian fairy tale, I would describe it as. It's about a, uh, a little bird whose flight southward for the winter. Mm -hmm. It keeps getting delayed because of the, re the strange requests of a local street beggar. This beggar asks him to go on various errands of mercy. He asks him to drop bread off to a homeless man and uh, uh, money off to a widow with orphans and, and a little gold cross off to a, a boy in the hospital. And as a, as a result of performing these errands of mercy, the bird gets uh, stuck in a, a snowstorm, a blizzard, and all seems lost uh, until a surprise ending, which I think we, could, I think we can give away here. Okay. Uh, I mean, you have a good, there's a YouTube promotional yes. trailer, which people can go and watch too. It's beautifully made. And also the artwork on your book is beautiful. Somebody uh, special did that for you. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, the, the artist's name is Richard Cowdery. And he also is a very mainstream uh, illustrator. He's a New York Times bestselling illustrator. He's done the Marley and Me series and the Fiona the Hippo series. And he specializes in uh, capturing animals. You, he puts human expressions on animals. And of course, you know, these books are ostensibly about animals, but they're really not. They're really about humans. We yes. just use animals. Why? Because children find them less intimidating. They're, they're, you know, adults are intimidating as they should be with figures of authority. But uh, a child can fall in love with an animal and, and enter into a story and be more uh, impacted as a result of that. So Richie Cowdery is the best person in the world at doing animals. And I wanted him to be able to portray this little good little bluebird here 
uh, and make children fall in love with him. And the surprise ending is that the beggar who asked him to go on these errands of mercy is not really a beggar at all, uh, but an angel. So yeah. that's another Christmas element. Well, the items that the Blue Board delivers to the various people in need are very interesting. There's bread, there's some coins, there's the cross. I mean, are these meant to symbolize something? I presume that's the case. Yeah, well, well, first of all, I always try to put biblical imagery. If it's a Christian, uh, overtly Christian book, I try to use some biblical imagery uh, just with the hope that when these children uh, get a little bit older and hopefully uh, read the Bible or see Bible stories uh, on TV or in the movies, that they uh, are already familiar with some of the symbols of the faith. Uh, because if you're more familiar with something, then again, it makes it easier to, uh, to access the deeper truths later on. In this particular case, yes, the, the uh, bread falling from the sky is like the, the manna in the desert. The, um, the, uh, you know, the, the gospels are always telling us to give to orphans and widows. And so we have that there. And of course, of course the cross is the, uh, the central symbol of Christianity. And in this particular book, the little bluebird really is kind of a Christ uh, figure. He's very Christ-like. He, he faces all kinds of risk and danger and, and ultimately sacrifices himself uh, so that he can help these other these other people. So the the meaning of the the book really is tied to the true meaning of gift giving, uh, and the true meaning of love. You know, because love is the most abused, confused, overused word in the in the English language, and and the kind of love that uh, we're supposed to show at Christmas, and the kind of love that Christianity talks about is it only means one thing: uh, self giving, sacrificial giving, doing something for the good of the other person, not, not just uh, for yourself. And that's exactly what this uh, little bird does in this story. So sacrifice and faith, because really you need, you need faith to go on that kind of a journey. That's right. You do. You, you do. Because otherwise, why, why would you do anything? Why would you do anything ex other than what animals do, which is just yeah. the, the law of survival? You know, you, you know, human beings are so special because we're able to overcome override the the instinct we have for survival and and sacrifice ourselves that's because why because we have immortal souls we we have something more than what the animals have and mm -hmm. these souls are capable of having faith in a greater good uh sonum bonum as thomas aquinas said the greatest good and and so we're able to sacrifice be because we know that uh the, 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 there's something even greater than our own lives Good literature and inspiring literature can change hearts and minds. And obviously, uh, you want kids to be inspired just the way you were inspired on that train from London to Manchester many years ago. And it, and it brought you back closer to your Christian faith. I do. I, 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 uh, I think that if uh, the, the, the immoral imagination is incredibly important and the fairy tales of old you know, Hans Christian Andersen, the Grimm brothers, those kinds of fairy tales, which are not really written today, really impact the moral imagination and captivate it. The imagination can be used, is neutral. It can be used for some, for, for good things. It can be used for bad things. Uh, but if you capture a child's moral imagination and he really understands deep in his bones <clears throat> that I'm going to face dragons when I get older, I'm going to face adversity and suffering. But by being virtuous, by being holy, even, I'll be able to overcome those things. I might not be able to avoid all suffering, but I'll be able to make it through the suffering uh, with my faith and my dignity uh, intact. 
So yes, I want to get across that message very, uh, very much to children. Your first book, A Traveled Guide to Heaven, yes, that was published in 18 countries. That was a bestseller. Yes, yes, yes. And, and uh, my next book, 10 Prayers God Always Says Yes To, was as well. And the meaning and the, the purpose of that book, Travel Guide to Heaven, and I'm always willing to talk about that book, um, was that, again, from a Christian point of view now, uh, heaven is not just a spiritual reality. We have a tendency to over-spiritualize our faith sometimes. Uh, and, and, and we think that heaven is just going to be cloudy and you know, full of these cartoonish figures of angels playing harps. That's not what the Gospels teach at all. That's not what Christianity teaches. In fact, that's not what Islam teaches. That's not even what Judaism teaches. There's going to be someday after what Christians call the resurrection, uh, we are going to have bodies. Uh, They're not going to be exactly like the bodies we have now. I certainly hope uh, not. But they're going to be glorified bodies. They're going to be something like uh, Christ's body after his resurrection. And therefore, let me stop you there for people who might not understand this concept. Are they physical bodies? Yes. Hmm. At some point after what's called the resurrection, we human beings are destined to have some kind of physical bodies. We are not meant to be angels. Angels are pure spiritual beings. We're not angels. We are human beings. We are a remarkable combination of, of body and spirit body and soul. And yes, there's a time period after we die when we'll be separated from those bodies. But Christians believe that someday after what's called the resurrection, there will be a general resurrection of the dead and we will get our bodies back. They will be uh, perfected and glorified. And what that means, the implications for, for us and the reason why I wrote the book Travel Guide to Heaven was simply that if you're going to have some kind of a physical body, even though it's spiritualized, there must also be some kind of a physical component to heaven. There's no reason to believe that heaven is going to be gray and cloudy. If anything, heaven's going to be more colorful than this world. If anything, heaven's going to be more real than this world. You know, if this, if this desk I'm hitting is real uh, and you're real and I'm real, there's no, you know, if, if any, heaven's not going to be less real than that. And I think people who are afraid of death and afraid of the afterlife don't understand that their religion teaches them that heaven's going to be more familiar to us than we commonly imagine. And the last thing I'll say about that is that what that means, practically speaking, is that someday after the resurrection, when you see your mother again, let's say, and she may have been dead for many, many years, you see her, you're not just going to be seeing a spirit you're going to be able to run up to her and hug her and kiss her and feel her the warmth of her skin and hear her voice again. This is the good news of the gospels. This is why Christianity has spread for 2000 years and why it will continue to spread despite the uh, forces of secularism because it's got this incredibly joyful message. Let's have you back sometime to talk about the forces of secularism because there's a big, you know, there's a big divide in in, in American society almost secularism versus religious faith, and it's like a fifty fifty divide, and the the country is in turmoil and on some levels with us. It is there is a culture war, and you have to be absolutely blind not to see it. That's the thing. I'm not saying one thing for either side. I'm saying there is a divide. There, the country is polarized, and it's one of the reasons why I write these children's books. Because 
because the other side is trying to hop over parents to propagandize children with their message. So it's incumbent upon Christians and Catholics and, and, and writers of, 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 of our beliefs to try to reach children ourse ourselves before the other side gets to them. That's how serious this battle is. Uh, an interesting question, the way the public school system in America has gone in many parts of the country, deeply secular, and the, you know, the government has moved in with all kinds of liberal, socially liberal mandates. It's a kind of a disturbing time for parents. The kind of books you've written over the years, would they make it on the bookshelves of uh, libraries in public schools today? I don't think so. No. You know, when I was growing up, I went to PS 179. I went to all public schools. My brothers went to public schools, even the priest in my family. Uh, but today, I don't know if I would uh, make that decision because of what you're saying right now. There is too much of an effort to uh, use propaganda uh, to jump over the heads of parents and inculcate them, uh, indoctrinate them with the secular beliefs. And so, no, I don't believe that my books could would be in the libraries of public schools today. Maybe some of them are, I don't know, but I, I, my guess is not. Well, hopefully some of them make it in and, and are left up there for people to read. And presumably schools of Christian faith and Catholic faith would, would, would certainly have your books. Yes, yes, very popular. Themselves. Yeah. Um, it's easy to order books nowadays. You just call out the title and people just Google. But is there any, they could go to your website. Do you want to give us any information? I, I'm, again, I've been very blessed. You, if, uh, the, my books are carried by Barnes & Noble. They're at uh, local, uh, all local bookstores. You can't get them from my website. Uh, you go to Amazon. But you also you can find out about all my books on uh, www.anthonydestefano.com. I apologize for that long Italian name. But uh, we love like, it. you can see a lot of uh, uh, all, the, all the books up there. Anthony Stefano, thank you for being on my show. Good luck with this new book. Have a great Christmas season ahead and enjoy all the holidays. And we will talk again. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.